0: I think we can identify a basic internal subdivision in this chapter with verses 1 to 15, focusing on the relationship between people, king, and God, and verses 16 to 30, dealing with the contrast between wise and foolish speech. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Tremper Longman III says helpfully here, This proverb makes it clear that though humans can legitimately make plans, God's will is definitive as to what will actually happen. quote. This verse should encourage us with the truth that God can and often will make more of what we say than our planning and preparation would warrant. It is the Spirit of God that is ultimately determinative in gospel discourse. So in Luke 12, 11 to 12, Jesus says to his disciples, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Closed quote. The Holy Spirit will turn the speech of common fishermen into compelling discourse. He will amplify their voice and cause their words to pound like hammers upon the hearts of their inquisitors. This verse should also remind us that not everything evil people say will have the effect that they intend. Matthew Henry says here, God easily can and often does cross men's purposes and break their measures. It was a curse that was prepared in Balaam's heart, but the answer of the tongue was a blessing. Closed quote. And praise the Lord. Verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Yes, one of the most important things for us to realize is that we are not reliable arbiters of our own thoughts and actions. All the ways of a man and all the ways of a woman, too, seem right in their own eyes. Everyone justifies his or her own actions. Everyone is sympathetic to his or her own motivations. But none of that matters in the end because we are not ultimately in charge. You can think whatever you like about your thoughts, actions, and decisions. But it is the Lord who weighs the spirit. Verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. This verse makes sense in the light of the previous two. Since God's will is the only one that will ultimately triumph, and since he is the one who determines the morality of every thought and action, it makes sense to plan and move in accordance with his sovereign will. and every prayer with thy will be done, and all your prayers will be effective. Commit your work to the Lord, and all your plans will be established. The idea here is to offer your work to God for his purposes, such that even if things don't work out the way you anticipated, you can be sure that your efforts have served his perfect ends. Verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is taught everywhere in the Bible. Here we're being told that God has a purpose for everything and everyone. Derek Kidner points out that there are ultimately no loose ends in God's world. Everything will be put to some use and matched with its proper fate. Quote. He goes on quickly to add, it does not mean that God is the author of evil, closed quote. Yes, of course, we would remember from verse 1 that wicked people may intend wicked ends. But God bends their words and actions toward his sovereign purpose. He is not the author of evil, but he does use, redirect, and subvert evil to further his perfect ends. The story of Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt is the ultimate illustration of this principle in the Bible. His brothers meant it for evil, but the Lord used it for good. Verse five, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Those who live their lives in arrogant rebellion against God will in the end be judged and cast down. Part of wisdom is understanding that ultimately no one gets away with anything. Every sin will be punished either in the body of Christ on the cross or in the body of the offender on the day of judgment. Verse 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. This proverb makes use of synonymous parallelism with a variant, meaning the two sides are very similar, but also different in significant ways. As a whole, the proverb is talking about putting away sin. The first half is focused on the positional putting away of sin, and the second half, the practical putting away of sin. And these are, of course, two sides of the same coin. In the first colon, we're told that by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. That's a staggeringly important statement. The Hebrew words there are hesed and emet. If you take even one course in seminary on biblical Hebrew, you will no doubt spend a fair bit of time talking about these two words. They are maximally important, theologically speaking. When they're paired in this way, they express the correct way for a person to relate to God. Alan P. Ross says here, joined together, these words form a hendiatus expressing faithful covenant love, Well, that's pretty much the essence of what we want to say about how a person should relate to God, Old Testament and new. There should be faith and loyalty, faith and faithfulness, we might say. There should be a covenant connection and commitment, and there should be love. If there is that, then sin is atoned for. Now, this verse doesn't provide the mechanics of how sin is atoned for. It just says that it is. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament directed faith forward, And we don't find out the towards what part until we get to the New Testament. But it is important for us to say that the cross of Jesus Christ provided atonement for all those under the old covenant who had faithful covenant love toward God. The how was left hanging, but it was frequently promised and affirmed as it is being here. The second part of the verse says that by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil talked about this now on many occasions, Douglas Stewart says that the fear of the Lord is enjoined throughout scripture, demanding that God's people stand always in awe of him, appreciate his supremacy and greatness, fear the consequences of disobeying his will, and not treat lightly any aspect of their covenant relationship with him, lest the consequences be severe or even fatal. So an aspect of that faithful covenant love is the desire not to treat any aspect of one's relationship with God lightly, lest the consequences be severe or even fatal. Thus, remaining sin is diligently rooted out and repented of. In biblical faith, love and fear go together, properly defined and properly interrelated in the heart of the true believer. Thanks be to God. Verse 7, and we'll have to start moving faster here, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The idea here is that if you walk in the ways of peace, you will have fewer enemies and fewer problems. It would be difficult to disagree with that. Verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. We've encountered a number of these better than Proverbs already in our journey. The idea here is that while there's nothing wrong with a large yield, better a little with righteousness than great revenue with injustice. When you make your money honestly, you can enjoy it with a clear conscience, and you won't have to answer for your method of acquisition come Judgment Day. Verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Verse 9 and verse 1 are largely parallel. What was said there with respect to speech is equally true here with respect to steps or actions. Verse 10, an oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. The meaning of this verse is debated, but the idea seems to be that because a word from the king in his official capacity carries such force and moral authority, he ought not to speak unjustly. If all human words have the power to heal or harm, as we talked about earlier, how much more the words of a king? Verse 11, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. I prefer the translation offered by Tremper Longman the Third here. He has verse 11, the balance and scales must be just according to Yahweh. He concerns himself with the weights of the pouch. If that is the correct translation, then the proverb requires no further comment. Verse 12. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. The meaning here would be similar to the meaning of verse 10, though here the focus is on the actions of a king as opposed to the words of a king. Again, because of his authority, because of his office, the effect of his actions is considerable. And therefore it is an abomination for kings to do evil. The whole point of magisterial authority is to promote and protect the good. Verse 13 Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A good king values honest speech, and so he should, because when truth is absent from the public square, chaos and anarchy inevitably follow. Verse 14 a king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans thirteen four. the king does not bear the sword in vain. The magistrate is authorized by God to use violence to protect citizens and to enforce justice. Now, does the sword always swing wisely and accurately? Not in a fallen world, but even still, better a sloppy sword than no sword at all. The absence of lethal magisterial authority leads to the law of the jungle, so don't be too eager to knock the sword out of Caesar's hand. Even still, a wise man in such a world gives the sword of Caesar a wide berth. Verse 15, in the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Verse 15 is the flip side of verse 14. If it is dangerous to fall afoul of the king, then of course it is marvelous to enjoy his favor. As Christians, we have experienced both sides of this coin in North America. We've spent most of our history living in verse 15, enjoying privilege, favor, and prosperity. And now, more recently, we are experiencing the realities implied in verse 14. We are having to make decisions as to when it is best to sidestep Caesar's sword and when, for honor's sake, we must absorb it. It is certainly not wrong to prefer and to pray for the king's favor, as long as we are prepared to faithfully endure his wrath, should the Lord so require. In verse 16, we enter an extended section dealing generally with the contrast between wise and foolish speech. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Before you can speak wisely, of course, you have to obtain wisdom. How much better to get wisdom than gold? Verse 17 The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Wisdom is to be found along a certain path, a path that willfully and intentionally turns away from evil. Verse 18 Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is a good example of synonymous parallelism. As you can plainly see, the two lines or colons are saying exactly the same thing, using slightly different terminology. Interestingly, the version of this saying that has become an English proverb does not exist in the Bible. Pride goeth before the fall sounds like a Bible verse, but it isn't. It is a contraction of this proverb with the synonymous parallelism edited out. Regardless, the contracted version does summarize neatly the message of the saying, pride indeed goes before the fall. A person with his nose in the air will very shortly trip over a rock or tumble down into a ditch. Pride makes us unstable and unaware. Verse 19, it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. The phrase divide the spoil is normally associated either with warfare or highway robbery, so the method of accumulation and the amount of satisfaction derived from the accumulation are both in view. The person who gathers wealth through violence has no reason to be proud. They didn't earn it, they stole it. And they have clearly forgotten one of the fundamental principles of wisdom having to do with maintaining an eternal perspective. The wise person knows that ill gotten gain will not survive the final judgment. Therefore, the humble company of the working poor is much to be preferred to an assembly of arrogant jackals. Verse 19 Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Alan P. Ross provides a common sense interpretation of this proverb. He says, the person who trusts in the Lord and gives heed to instruction will be blessed by him. He will find earthly prosperity and heavenly bliss from living a life that is right with God, Close quote. Again, fear God and play the long game. Verse 21, the wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The wise of heart is called discerning discerning. So this proverb is about how wise speech over time leads to a reputation for discernment. Influence is further amplified by sweetness or pleasantness of speech. Twitter is thus a great way to dissipate influence and undermine your reputation one careless utterance at a time. The wise person in the digital age does not blurt out every thought that they have. The wise person does not give full vent to every annoyance that they feel. They resist the pull toward the classification of discourse. It may cost them clicks and follows in the short term, but over the long haul, it will pay off in added respect and persuasiveness. When you talk, people will listen, and they will know that you've put some thought into what you are saying. Verse 22. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The basic idea here is that a person's prospects in life depend to a great extent upon his or her good sense. The wisdom of the wise leads to flourishing. The folly of the foolish leads to ruin. Life outcomes begin in the heart and mind. Verse 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. This is very similar to verse 21, only here the focus moves back one step in the process. Yes, wise people will develop a reputation for discernment, but that's because they have protected and instructed their hearts. Remember, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12:34. So if you want that good reputation, then you need to cultivate a good heart. Verse 24, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. As we've heard a few times already, according to the wise father, our words have the ability to heal or to harm. Be a healer. Speak words of life and truth. Verse 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This verse repeats verbatim Proverbs 14:12. The basic idea there, as here, is that we cannot ultimately trust our own perceptions and evaluations. The heart is corrupted by sin and self-interest. Therefore, it is wise to trust what God says more than we trust our own instincts and inclinations. Verse 26. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. This verse reminds us to respect the power of proper incentive. A man will work harder when he is hungry. He will work harder if he perceives a connection between his labor and his reward. In that sense, this proverb runs parallel to Deuteronomy 25.4, which says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. That's a principle suggesting that all creatures work a little harder when they have a hope of sharing in the proceeds of the enterprise. The Apostle Paul cites Deuteronomy 25.4 twice in his epistles, in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Timothy 5, both times arguing for fair pay for gospel ministers. Even pastors work a little harder if their increase is connected in some way to the increase of the ministry. That isn't crass or unfaithful. That is wise. It's simply a recognition of how the created world has been wired. Verses 27 and 28 are clearly connected. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Tremper Longman III says here, Evil folly produces social divisions. The perverse are those who turn things upside down and around, and so produce conflict. Closed quote. People like this are knowingly or unknowingly agents of chaos and social disintegration. Because of the harm that they can do in a community, you have to be fairly urgent in terms of how you deal with them. One wonders whether the Apostle Paul had these verses in mind when he said to young Titus, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned closed quote. That's Titus 3, 10 to 11. You can't play patty cakes with this kind of person. The stakes are just too high. The fire of gossip and slander spread too quickly. So you warn a person like that once, then you warn them a second time. And if they can't be reclaimed and reformed, then they must be removed for the sake of the wider community. If you're a pastor, you need to understand that once a person like this gets a foothold in your church, there is no bloodless solution. You will lose this person and his five or six closest friends, or you will lose the entire church. There there is no pain-free approach, so get that out of your mind and do what needs to be done. Verse 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. The focus here moves from socially destructive words to socially destructive actions actions. As in verse 28, the contagion spreads. The man of violence entices his neighbor. You never have just one rotten apple in the basket. Stupid and sinful spread. Verse 30, whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass. It's hard to know what these sorts of gestures meant in that culture, but based on the context, we presume that they are intended to communicate and intent to deceive. Such people undermine community. Now, remember, this collection was originally prepared for the royal son, the person who would be in charge of the community. So the implication is that he should do something about that. The wise father is more overtly directive in Proverbs 22, verse 10, which says, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. If the scoffers and the schemers and the slanderers are given free reign in society, chaos follows. The wise leader will silence them and, when necessary, remove them. Verse 31. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Age generally does lead to greater maturity and wisdom. The old are not always right, as pointed out in the book of Job, but as a general rule, age should be respected. Older people have seen a lot and have learned a lot. And while they still need instruction, as we see in Paul's letter to Titus, they're also in a position to give instruction. And wiser those who are willing to listen. Verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The basic idea here is that it is harder to rule yourself than it is to rule others. The most important battle you will ever fight is the battle for your own heart. So many people would rather fight the government or fight their neighbors than engage in the inner battles of the soul. But that is where the true treasure is. If you can rule yourself, then you are ready to profitably engage the world. Verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. As many commentators point out, this last proverb returns to the theme that dominated the beginning of the chapter, perhaps serving to mark off the unit. The point being made here is that nothing is truly random in this universe. Even things that look random are ultimately subject to the determination of the Lord. The future will unfold according to his perfect plan. However many twists and turns, ups and downs, heartaches, and hardships there may be along the way. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into of the Word. If you've appreciated the Into of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your Word